So I think being able to like kind of step in the shoes of a character and move around a world where like people aren't looking you, you know, in in a way, whether it's a good way or a bad way, I think that was probably really appealing to me. Hello and welcome to Why Button, the podcast that asks why we care about video games. I'm your host, Kyle Starr. On this show, I interview creators, enthusiasts, journalists, and media personalities about their origins with video games, what keeps them so interested in the medium, and what excites them about the future. On this episode, I'm joined by Polygon's editor-in-chief, Chris Plant. I've been a huge fan of Chris's work since he co-founded Polygon in 2012. I'm also a huge fan of his work on the Besties podcast, a video game show with McElroy brothers Justin and Griffin, as well as fellow Polygon co-founder Russ Frustick. Full transparency, I was a bit under the weather when I spoke with Chris. This is also my first episode back since taking a little break for work. Needless to say, I felt pretty rusty and not entirely on the top of my game, but thankfully, Chris has a wealth of podcasting experience and deep knowledge of various entertainment mediums, which is kind of necessary when you run a website like Polygon covering not only video games, but film, TV, books, comics, and the culture surrounding all of it. All right, enough preamble, on with the show. Chris Plant, welcome to Why Button. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a delight. We've known each other for a deceptively long time. It's been at least 11 years, I think. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it's like when Besties started, I met you. you I feel like you were, you were one of the first people who was like, oh, you exist. And we're like, wait, people listen to this? What, what, what the hell? Like, what is wrong with people? We thought we were just going to put it out into the air. This is more of a, a vanity project. I worked in podcasts. I won't be specific about it, but I worked in podcasts about 10, 11 years ago. Before that, I was an avid fan of Polygon and I, I really got to know a lot of the writers. My wife and I had moved, we moved from Orange County up to San Francisco around that time, 10, 10 or so years ago. I found myself in this kind of lonely place. I didn't really know anybody. And I started listening to more podcasts and found besties. And I was like, this is amazing. And it's all the guys that I like. And, and really because of you all. So I should just start and say, thank you so much because of besties. I felt like I had a community and I felt like I had this group that I could like connect with, even though it was a one-way conversation and really got to know your work through that. And then I think, again, we started following each other on Twitter or something like that. And we ended up meeting up. I think you and I met up at uh, the, um, couple of E3s, I think. It was one E3. It was the, the late yeah. E3. Uh, yeah. Bless his heart. Rip. Rip. But yeah, we met at E3 and just had a coffee and a chat. And I, I appreciate that. And just thank you. So you have been really what it comes down to is you've been a, a voice literally in my ears for about 11 years. We've been chatting on and off here and there. I really value your opinion. I, I admire the work you have done over the course of your, your games journalism um, career, I guess. And we can talk more about that. But with all that said, quick question. Your last name is a noun and mine is two. Does anybody ever ask you or tell you your name is so cute or they have a quick, a fun little like anecdote about a plant? Not only, <laughs> I love that this is where you start because I'm recording this audio on my end. Just be careful, real podcaster habit. And I named the file Star Plant. Because I was like, oh, you got to make it something cute. If we're going to be here together, you're going to bring them. You're going to make something just so, so adorable, even if it's a stupid file name. I have um, an aunt whose uh, maiden name was Human, and I'm forever crushed that they did not keep both names for their child uh, so they could have Ian Human Plant. Um, but they decided that was, quote, too far. Um, so, so she just became ant plant is what you're talking she, about. Uh -huh, you're exactly. She just became ant plant. Thank you. <laughs> so Chris plant. Yeah. You, uh, I, I alluded to this. 
you've been in the games journalism for a long time. The premise of this show, mm. Why Button, is to really figure out why people care about video games. I am a person who just surrounds himself with video game industry news, cultural uh, goings on. And I play the occasional game here and there, but I don't get a whole lot of time to actually play and, and end up immersing myself in everything else around it. But I can't get enough of it. Like it's all the podcasts I consume. It's all the news I consume. And I gather there are more people out there that are like me that do this as well, that are just enamored with this medium, but don't really know why they're so consumed with it. Maybe this is sure. true of other hobbies, but I'm specifically focusing on games because that's that's my deal. You being in journal, games journalism for so long, I thought might have a very interesting opinion on what your own journey in games looks like and why you're so uh, connected to it and, and, and care about it so much. If you don't mind, I could run down the list, but I would love to hear your story about getting into games journalism, why you even started in games journalism and uh, where it's taken you. And for the record, I should also just, just say right now you are currently the editor-in-chief of Polygon.com, the best video game website oh. out there right thank now. you i appreciate that i i i'm a little surprised to be here because my origin story is so short and you're you're good at research you know that if you just go to kotaku in action and you look at the wiki you will find out that i had never played a video game in my life until co-founding polygon and the entire attempt to destroy the video game industry that's that i mean that's really it i've, wow. I've actually never played a video game no no i um i do have a more a more detailed industry but i i like to imagine that it's much because if anybody sees me that i think if you look at me you're like oh yeah what else were you gonna do with your life <laughs> like <laughs> you, you, you kind of got filed into a hole you weren't even trying and uh it just you know you sifted through yeah. What is my journey? I mean, maybe the better question to start with is you obviously work in, you work in games journalism. Yeah. You are okay. Again, currently the editor in chief of Polygon. You've spent some time at the verge, I think in between some Polygon stints, you actually co-founded Polygon, which was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Again, my, when I saw Polygon for the first time, I, I just, my mind blew up. It was crazy. You've done instructing at NYU before Polygon. I understand that you you were at UGO and helped with um, oh, yeah. one up, one up.com, all that. Um, and so again, you, you're living in the games journalism world. Maybe the question is why did you pick games journalism and why not make games? There's, there's obviously, you're obviously yeah. interested in games so you go this direction of journalism why is it journalism and not like making games i i have the most insufferable answer for that especially because getting a job in games journalism is is really really tough these days but like the just being fully honest i had no intention of doing this i mm. honestly didn't have a lot of interest in doing this i I guess my origin story is I, I I loved video games as a kid. I loved playing them, but I, I wanted to be a writer and I didn't know what that meant. I grew up in kind of like rural area outside of Kansas City, Missouri, and I didn't even know like what you could possibly get paid for to be a writer. I, I don't know. I, I guess you could grow up and be Mark Twain. Like I, it was it was a very hard thing for me to conceptualize. But as I got into junior high and then high school, I, I, I found that I wasn't even like good necessarily at writing, but I just like I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed theater. I enjoyed being a performer. I enjoyed the arts. I was the kid who like we've talked about this off the show, who found himself like very deep in the Midwest emo scene. 
in the um, late 1990s, early 2000s. And I, I think all of that kind of opened this door of like, yeah, you can go do something like who knows what it is, but you can go figure it out. So I applied to a whole bunch of different schools for college that were like nowhere near where I lived and um, ended up getting into NYU and went there for writing. Um, they have a program that is like focused on television and film and playwriting. So I did I did that for college. While I was doing that, I, I still never fully understood like where that would take me. I just knew I had to make money. I have a, a hairdresser for a mother and a firefighter for a father, which I think is a great hell of a way to grow up, but is not necessarily the most financially, um, you know, you're not drowning in cash. Uh, so I, I knew that I needed to find some money. So even during college, I was taking gigs here and there. I um, interned at The Onion and then kind of fell my way into a art director gig on their um, the Onion News Network, which was this like video series that they were doing for a long time. I did a thing at the BBC in London that was like hopefully going to set me up for a job, and that kind of went sideways, but it gave me kind of a real taste for journalism. I did some like work on TV pilots, and then I like graduated. Um, and I graduated in 2008 into the recession, and it was horrible. And even just getting like TV stuff was hard. Uh, I got a, you know a, a crappy job on a TV show like a PA or a writer's assistant or something, and that show got canceled after like four episodes. And I was like, I just need to find something steady. So I can stay here right now. You know, mm -hmm. so my friends are like moving to L.A. I was like, man, I can't think about moving to L.A. I can barely think about staying here. So I, I was like, well, what, what am I competent at? I was like, well, I played a lot of video games. I know how to write, kind of. And I found a job listing for the lowest of the low end of entry jobs at UGO. It was kind of like an IGN competitor. Um, a long time before I started there, by the time I got there, it was, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> it was just publishing because I guess it had enough uh, accrued ad deals that somehow it could justify its existence. And yeah, I, I went into the interview. They asked me how to correctly spell Matthew McConaughey. I got it wrong. Um, and then I told them that's a really stupid question from a bunch of people who couldn't get 50 other typos that I had found on the homepage that day. And the person who hired me, fortunately, was the type of person who liked that talk and was like, the gall of ya. Um, I would never talk that way now. I mean, what a what a talk about just total bullshit that I, I pulled off. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, I, I got a job, and for the first year, honestly, I mostly um, I uploaded a, a XML sheets. Um, we didn't, you know, people when you publish now, you think of it like Twitter, right, or a, a you WordPress. Post you know, on it, yes. You press post, and and ours was you you wrote the actual code <laughs> into sheets, and then you uploaded those files, and then you waited for a half hour for all of them to hit the server, holding your breath, because if there was an error, it killed the site, and then you had to be there to go through it all again. I mean, it was it's funny because it's so similar, not similar, but it, it is an echo of the early print days mm -hmm. uh, where you actually had to publish. So yeah, that I guess that's my like walking uphill, but I, I did that mostly... To pay my bills yep. and paid awful paid. I mean, truly horrendous uh, was barely it wasn't enough, honestly, to like get by. We were, you know, it was like, you know, you eat ramen and beans for a year. And then I just kind of 
kept climbing. I don't know. It was yeah, it was sure. so I had so little money in so little time that it, it's what they tell you in art school is like, don't have a plan B because your plan B will become your life. I just got very, very, very lucky in that while that beginning part was like really hard, it ended up blossoming into this thing that I've like loved. And I'm so glad that like I took a job at a place I kind of hated doing a thing I kind of hated and just kind of like wasn't thinking about it during that period. I was just thinking about getting through the years. And by the time I, I kind of worked my way up, I was there. Um, yeah. Well, I was, you know, writing things that I actually cared about and had a little bit of an audience. So sorry, that was a long, long walk for a small glass of me. But no, it's it's I, I think it's very insightful. And, you know, I, I I'm then curious, like what how how then does Polygon happen? So you're still at this, you know, yeah, still at UGO, yeah. and then you move into like it just ha- like one day, hey, we're going to set up a new website with some friends. Like what's yeah, the deal there? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I wish it was that. Um, I, so I, um, when I, when I was in college and again, I was kind of experimenting with journalism and just like, how can I, how can I write in a way that entertains myself? I had written a few kind of like opinion-y things for a site called Game Set Watch, which was run by the absolutely fantastic Simon Carlos. There is a generation of people in this industry that owe their careers to this man. He um, helped run GDC, I would say during its prime. By helped, I mean like, was like a, a key part. Um, he ran... Um, a, poorly named, but extremely important at the time, Gamma Sutra and Game Dev, just so influential. Now he runs a great, great consultancy uh, kind of group slash newsletter slash tool called Game Discover Co. It's um, a great newsletter. I, I love I have it. To shout out. It's so insightful. But yeah, he, while he was in college, he was like, hey, you know, I'll pay you a little bit of money and you can write something once a week and you can get some experience. And um, another writer named Lee Alexander was there at the time and she kind of took me under her wing. And because of that, I knew what I knew what I thought good work looked like. Um, I like had a taste of what what could be good what my mind at the time was like good critical thinking and uh reporting and i like craved it so even when i wasn't doing it i had this kind of like i really want to go i want to do that like how do i get people to pay me to do that um i'm, I'm probably not going to go back into tv production that's a that's a bust for now maybe one day but i'm, I'm starting to enjoy this and I would enjoy it even more if I could write something that I believed in, <laughs> um, you know, not just like captions and galleries. So at UGO, after about probably like a year and a half, two years, it had been acquired by Hearst. We had then acquired one up in EGM. It was just kind of all over the place. I The writing was kind of on the wall. You know, the recession had just kind of lingered. And my boss had like suggested, you know, I don't know if layoffs are going to happen, but if they do, I think it'd be great if you like stayed still and you could like help, but there would just be like fewer people here. And one of the like most not me things I've ever done, I'm so forever grateful to this very brief wise version of myself was I I, I said like, please don't. I was like, please, please lay me off (laughs) because if I get laid off, we had been acquired by Hearst, I'll get a good exit package for a few months. And I, I, and since really my entire adult life. Since the day I moved to NYU, I I hadn't had two or three months just try to figure something out. You know, I'd always been chasing some money. So I was like, this is it. Like I I need that chance. And then if I, if that chance doesn't work out and I need to like move back home or something, so be it. But like, at least I'll have gotten that chance. So 
yeah, so they they ended up laying me off, uh, basically like on my birthday. Um, oh, uh, it was so no, nice. It was it was like a perfect present. I felt very lucky. I was very young. I felt very um. I felt very spoiled because you know I, I was young. I didn't have like kids or anybody relying on me at this point. So the, a lot of people on my team had it much worse. But for me, it was an opportunity, and I from there just kind of took every dollar I could find because I knew that if I could start to become self sufficient as a freelance then I could start to like actually kind of pick my battles. So I did a lot of like, <laughs> there is an entire era of how to do social media templates at Scholastic, uh, where if you ever want to know how to use Reddit, you and you worked at Scholastic or you're an author, you read my document on how to use FARC wow. or, or whatever else. Uh, it was a lot of like that sort of writing. Jeez. And around the same time, a publication called The Daily, which not The Daily, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, the iPad, the iPad only app. newspaper yeah. launched and an editor there had somehow seen some other various freelance work I picked up and was like, hey, I need somebody like right now. Can you start writing? And they needed to fill a lot of pages fast and I could do that. So I I started writing kind of features there on a on a weekly cadence. I was just I mean it was just nonstop. I felt like I was just writing or un it was a great like um exercise and that it, it got me fast. It got me to like sure. really really produce a lot of work and really go out and do interviews. That was the other thing. It's like it's like I just I need somebody who can be in New York and go and talk to people every day. So every day I was walking and just finding trying to find a story in New York that was related to entertainment and putting it in their newspaper. And I don't think anybody read it. Entertainment was the beat you were after for that publication. Yeah, it was it was entertainment. I mean, very games focused, but like kind of games in the world. So like going to like a pinball bar, stuff like that. Right. But yeah. And then um, from there, I kind of was able to build up a portfolio. And I knew that I eventually wanted to try to get back on a staff because I, I while I enjoyed it, it, it was unrelenting in how much I had to produce just to, you know, again, pay my bills. And um, there kind of, there were a few different options that I had. And the one that seemed the biggest gamble is the one that I ended up taking, which was Polygon. Um, and I got, which is in hindsight is so funny because the other options, I won't go into it, but like not, they, they would have been the wrong choices. But at the time, um, so many people let me know that I was making a huge mistake. <laughs> um, and now I, that's a, that's a great thing to get a carry with you. I will say yeah. that. Uh, that is the great thing about following your heart is when it does work out, it feels really good. Told um, you so. Yeah, it, it, it told you so is a powerful thing. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of like how I got from a, a bad place to a, a better place. That's awesome. There, and, and we haven't really even touched on it yet. I know we've been talking already a lot. And, and I do think your career in journalism is important for actually specifically talking about games. There wasn't a whole lot there about games and games journalism specifically. But I imagine throughout all of that, you were not only covering games for the daily, for eventually Polygon, UGO, all this sort of stuff, but you're playing games on the side throughout this. Or were, could you, you know, maybe that's a good question is like, you're focusing on paying your bills. Are you even able to play games during any of this time? Yeah, I mean, you are, but what you would play at that time was like th the worst. You were you were truly picking through the sludge pile. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine now now because I think one, there's just so many games out and there's so many good games out that you could every week publish a couple reviews and you would never have to really review anything that's below like a six out of 10, right? If you're using the score system, people always say like, you know, why does IGN not have lower scores? There's any reasons for that. But modern 
day, like just because everything's like pretty solid and there's a ton of it, you know, you, you don't have time for the sludge. But when I was getting started, you know, you had really big, good games come out in November and that was kind of the thing, <laughs> you know, that maybe, maybe you got a few throughout the year before that. If you, if you were lucky, there were some surprises, but like week to week, you were reviewing, you know, like Jerry Rice's dog football on the Wii. <laughs> Or like, you know, some, I reviewed a, um, a zombie car racing game that Activision put out for joystick that I, I swear was totally incomplete. My favorite thing about it was when you hit the pause menu, it just started playing like really delicate acoustic, um, guitar. And I was like, sure. Like this is so clearly somebody got away with one, you know, like right. th this yeah. game was so unchecked, uh, that somebody's like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm going to put my cool, my extremely cool guitar music in this otherwise completely forgettable game. Amazing. So yeah. It was I played games. I did not play good games for the most part. I, I played a lot of a lot of crap. And then I played a, a lot of, you know, surprises. Uh, I played like a, there was a Sean White skateboarding game mm -hmm. where you could um, create the world around you. Like you'd like create rails as you went through the world. It was very it was Ubisoft, very inventive of its time. And those were the best. Like when you would get something that was a real 7 out of 10 energy, you know, it was like completely broken, didn't really click together at all. But it was, it had a, it had some ideas. Had ideas, charm. Yes. It got you. And I think right. it, as a writer, that was like great because you had something to say. You could yeah. kind of be in conflict with the piece, which makes it so much more engaging to read about. You know, just blanket praise or blanket dunking makes for really uninteresting reads. Um, and when you have something that is kind of messy like that, uh, I think those often lead to the best writing. Yeah, on that note, so I, I kind of think of that as like an aha moment or something like that with games where, you know, it's not only your big blockbusters, the greatest games out there, and sure, they're they're all amazing, but you get these little hints of like, that's an, I love that game. But like you said, it's a seven out of 10, the Sean White skateboarding game. Like nobody's going to even talk about this or think about it, but it made an impact to you. Yeah. This is going to rewind maybe a little bit, but, and I do know through your conversations on besties and even the stuff you cover, you personally cover on Polygon it seems to be the more niche titles, the more, uh, I don't know what you'd even call them. Um, the weirder ones, the, the maybe the yeah. seven, seven out of tens, those seem to be your jam. Can you think of, I know it's probably hard, but besides Sean White skateboarding, <laughs> can you think of what are other like aha games that have just kind of like blown your mind throughout your, your life? It, it's funny because what I'm going to say is going to sound like really obvious, but what I, I'm giving a lot of like <laughs> forewarning here, but what I, what I want to emphasize before I even say the names of these games is when you found a weird game as a kid, it was a miracle. You didn't have ROMs. Just finding a copy of a game was incredibly difficult. Even if you read like GamePro or EGM religiously as a 10-year-old and you saw a game coming out and you're like, that is a weird game. I really want it. You were calling Babbage's which would end up becoming, you know, every game story kind of got centralized under um, GameStop. But Babbage's or EB Games or KB Toys, you would call them every day. And this is where the whole like pre-order culture ironically comes from is because they would get maybe a copy in your area and you were going to be the person who like scored that copy. So my, the games for me were the original Harvest Moon was a huge one. Super Nintendo? Super Nintendo, yeah, yeah. And I remember when that was coming out on Super Nintendo, 
that I called at the time it felt like months. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure, you know, in kid brain, it was like days or weeks, but just I called non stop to get the copy of that game. And, and I, I remember to a T that our area in Kansas City got two copies and I was able to like score one of them. And eventually I'm sure more came in, but getting a game when it was not a, an established thing, there was a chance that you were just going to miss it. It was going to like yeah. happen and then be gone. Uh, the other one obviously was Earthbound, which again now has this entire culture around it. But at the time, no, not at all. I mean, this was a game that it, it's funny, the the copies of it with the um, strategy guide, they're in this giant box. They now sell for just a ridiculous amount of money. And this was the opposite, where I can remember it just sitting at our Walmart for months. And then finally being like, I need a, I really want to know what that is. And playing that and being like, wait, what? Like, why are we kids in a suburb? Like, how, how is this happening? What drew you to those games? What drew you to Harvest Moon and Earthbound, if not the packaging? Like, we didn't have press like we do now. We didn't have Polygon. We didn't have, we had screenshots in, 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 uh, you know, Game Pro. But to me, Harvest Moon and Earthbound are not games that I would look at in a Game Pro and be like, hell yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I think. I think I I didn't like uh, muscles. <laughs> I don't know like another way of putting it. I um I as a kid was I I grew up with I was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. I think I was very skeptical, not of jocks because it didn't quite work like that, but I was just scary, very skeptical of like masculinity. And again, being in the Midwest, there was just something I was about say, it. This guy get got you into Midwest emo. This all makes yeah, sense. yeah, it's it, all... it all felt very artificial and like in having a game that was not that. Having a game where it's like, oh, you farm. That's like, mm. wow, that's wild. You like have a family. You have a dog. Like you get it like a whole adult life and you're a kid. How how wild is that? Um, I think that's something that a lot of people are attracted to with, you know, big RPGs too. But for me, I, it was an awful lot of like reading and a whole bunch of like random battles. No, thank you. If I could just use that time to like farm some corn and some cabbage, that was a much better use of my my day. So yeah, that, that and same with uh. Earthbound. I mean, it, it is an RPG, but it felt so against the grain of what a video game should be, mm. um, that it was present, that it was modern day. I was thinking about this recently, I've been playing a lot of the new uh, Yakuza or Like a Dragon game, and how rare it is to play a game set in a modern day setting about modern day things that are not shooting people, you know? Like, yeah. how many of those games with a budget do you get in a year? Right. I, it's, I, I don't know. I can think of very few. That's actually a good point. Not to tangent too hard, but that whole, the, the idea that, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, but these games that are, these massive games that with these massive budgets, you're obviously going to cater to an audience, you know, the largest audience possible. And that largest audience knows the verb to shoot is, you know, is the most appealing thing. That's what sells copy. That's what's Call of Duty, Halo, whatever. That's what sells games is first person shooters. And that's what a lot of people think of when they think of video games or people who are not necessarily as you know closely tied to the space. When they think of video games, they first think of, oh, people just sitting in front of their TV or computer or whatever, just shooting other people. Yeah. It is fascinating. Like to, I'm just, maybe I'm just reinforcing your point. It's fascinating to find these games where there are these massive budgets that go into something that's as risky, I guess, as yeah. 
something like like a dragon or even you know what was arguably one of the best games of last year and to some people was definitely the best game of last year was alan wake there may be some shooting involved in that but it's like this massive budget put into something that was not that that was maybe risky and a weird you know kind of a weird game like it's you don't get that very often yeah it's, it, it, I, I guess I don't know what my point is here other than that's it's, it's cool to like, to sort of see that on occasion. And, and for folks who don't pay attention to the medium, like it's interesting, I guess, what, where am I going with it? It's nice to see that that type of game is getting elevated on occasion, right? Like you're break, we're breaking that mold of using the verb shoot all the time or something else. And we saw that back in the day with, you know, games when games were smaller or it could be a little more risky like Earthbound or Harvest Moon and to see it now is also sort of interesting. Do you think that there's going to be more of that or are we still that there's still a challenge yeah. there with I mean there's definitely a, you know a ton of it in the indie space. And I, and I love that. I, I love indie games uh I don't want to discount them. I think just talking to you, I think my kind of soft spot is for teams from larger or games from larger teams that that try to do the indie thing in that mold that that is when i am just very i don't know that's when it really clicks with me uh, on on a slightly higher level and i think you look at the games where that is true and it is stuff like near automata or 13 sentinels it might sound like i think to people it's like oh i favor japanese games and i i think that is more of a reflection of just this moment i think if you if we were having this like exact same podcast when i was starting in the industry it would have been the opposite it would have almost probably been exclusively ubisoft games mm -hmm. um because it was sean white it was um the original the crew where they were like or i guess driver san francisco where they were tying google maps to video games it was the original assassin's creed far cry 2 uh there were there were all these games that were like really pushing at what they thought a game could be and were being led by teams of people who kind of wanted to break the idea of what a game should be um, with like these massive budgets to do it. Um, now, I think we're seeing that from a lot of Japanese developers. I, I, I don't know if I even can really say why other than a tremendous amount of talent and influence i guess um a, a lot of risk taking I, I i don't know but for whatever reason um this current generation of younger um game directors i think is is just exceptionally inventive um coming out of different japanese studios right now i didn't mean to distract from your your history of games and again keep going back to harvest moon and and uh, earthbound but after that are there other games that you kind of found like You've had these formative experiences with these two games of they're outside the norms, outside the, the, you know, the typical video game genre of the time. Are there other games that you start coming across that that also speak to you the way those games did? Yeah, it, it's tough to say, like, what what were the games that I guess defined me as a kid? Because some of it was just like whatever I would play with friends, you know, like sure. I, I, generationally, I played a lot of GoldenEye multiplayer and a lot of original Smash Brothers on Nintendo 64 and Mario Kart in friends' basements, um, you know, before school. Like, that was a good chunk of time. And then on my own, that is when I feel like I was seeking out the stranger options. So that meant playing The Legend of the Mystical Ninja Goemon 
on the Nintendo 64, which that series just like doesn't really come out here anymore. Um, and that kind of blew my mind. And then I always made the wrong choice. I always bet on Sega um, with the one console I could own at a time. So I had a Sega Saturn and, you know, I was playing like Clockwork Night and um, Nights into Dreams and really bizarre games that nobody really cares about anymore. Um, and then I went with the Sega Dreamcast and I played even more. I played, you know, Seaman and Shinmu and uh, Zombie Revenge and Die Hard Arcade and uh, all of these games that, I mean, I maybe that is why I like the 7 out of 10s is just I don't know better, you know? <laughs> like if you're raised on a healthy crop of, you know, garbage, you, you suddenly turn 30 and you're like, I only crave garbage. <laughs> like, I, I don't know other foods. I, yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know. I wouldn't go that far. I feel like it's maybe you were, I feel like you were on like the kale diet. Like it's, yeah, likes it. But it actually is pretty good for you. It seems to give you a pretty well-rounded perspective, an interesting perspective outside of, you know, again, your the the normal, I, I would say, just say the norms or the big blockbusters or the things that are, you know, everybody's talking about. That's, again, why I appreciate hearing your perspective on the besties is, you know, you you kind of go against the grain of the other three in a lot of cases, or at least to me, you do. It, with, yeah, we, with had, your we had very different upbringings, I think, in terms of like video games. I I, I think that's yeah. certainly the case. And and both, um, obviously, Griffin and Justin are brothers. They do shows together. Um, Frush grew up with an older brother. And I think because of that, there was maybe some like sharing of the gaming mm. systems and things like that and you could kind of cover more ground are you an only only child Is i'm that... an only child um and i yeah i'm an only child who grew up with um a very large catholic family so we always mm. had people living in our house um so it was kind of this like uh it, it was great, but at, at sometimes it felt like um, the bad of both worlds, where it was like, great, none of the attention and none of the time to myself, but also no built-in friendships for the rest of my life. Right, like, right. Very cool. But yeah, it, it, you're, you're right. At, at the minimum, my my gaming history um, makes for a good party trick. Like I felt like uh, early in my career, people would be like, well, you played this, this, and this, right? And I'd be like, no. And they'd be like, oh can't believe you haven't played Zelda. And he's like, yeah, but do you want to hear me talk at length about Nights into Dreams? And they're like, no, but I'm impressed. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it really helped in that respect. I'd be like, what about the Christmas edition? And they're like, okay, you can stop talking. We get, we get it. You're a weirdo. No, but I love it. Like it's, it's still, I still think there's, there's so much value in it, you know, not to go into too much like therapy here or, or, you know, drill down into, you know, your upbringing but what what did games serve you in those in that time growing up in that sort of I guess I'm not going to I don't want to say solitary, but in some way, I imagine you're playing games alone, maybe not necessarily were you relating to anybody in your family about games and sharing that experience with them, or is it just your your experience? My parents were always curious about it, um and they were very supportive of it, thank God, <laughs> you know, yeah. like uh, so many parents when I was a kid weren't. And they were always happy. I think part of it was because of having a club lip and a club palate. I had surgeries most summers of my childhood and was like pretty bandaged up. And that's when a lot of kids would be like playing sports. And my parents kind of tried to do that for a little while, but a mix of like my own anxiety and their anxiety. I mean, again, fireman, hairdresser, spending God knows how much money on these surgeries and 
for them, it was like, hey, we can't like break our investment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, to the point that they would tell us, they'd be like, you know, if, if you're playing basketball, don't like charge up on anybody because like if you pop your mouth open, like I don't know how we'll pay for it. Yeah. So as a result, yeah, I spent a lot of time inside um, just by virtue of like, hey, when 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 I had had a surgery, that would be two or three months of like kind of calm it down and play it safe for a while. Um, so that would that's when I would like really kind of get lost in these. And I think it was partly to fill the time. And I think it was partly, again, growing up in the Midwest and not traveling a lot as a kid. It was a way of seeing a world. And then I think there's also just being a different person. I think this is very common for all sorts of people in video games, being able to see themselves as somebody else. But the thing with like a cleft lip and a cleft palate is it's on your face. You know, it is your face. So as a little kid, there is no moment that it is not there. And you can feel people like staring all the time and you get used to it pretty quickly. You you adapt to it pretty quickly, but you're you're just forever aware of it. Um, I feel very lucky that as an adult, largely I'm not. I, it is not a thing that I think about on a year-to-year basis. But as a kid, you know, it really is present. So I think being able to like kind of step in the shoes of a character and move around a world where like people aren't looking at you, you know, in, in a way, whether it's a good way or a bad way, I think that was probably really appealing to me. Do you think that that's the magic there is inherent in games? I mean, in my head, it feels like it almost has to be because of the way you can, the agency and the interaction you can have over the character. It's not like reading a book where you can put yourself in their shoes or you're watching a movie and you can understand what that person's going through, but this is something you get to imbue and embody. I, I, I think so on some level. I'm not... I, I I try really hard not to over celebrate video games, which oh, makes sure. you a weird guest for for your show. But I I think when you love something, it's really easy to be like, only this thing I love could do this because right. I love it. Um, and I think that there are people I know there are people who who have all sorts of different challenges in their lives who who find what I'm talking about in other forms. Right? Um, I think of like. Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong, who is a comedian um, who has a cleft lip um, and like that he found, I think, a lot through like performance, uh, which is, again, is a similar thing, right? Like you are you are taking on a different identity. You're putting a different face on. But all of that said, I also kind of have to agree with you because I've worked in this industry long enough and I've met our audience to know this is such a common thread. It is astonishing how many people I meet who have a story similar to mine, despite having a completely different childhood. Um, but what what brought them to games, what kept them into games, was that um, that masking ability that they didn't have in the world. And and I I think we only see it more and more these days. I think that's that's pretty common with young people in general um, who have all sorts of other reasons that they feel a need to mask. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective you have in saying like you know, just through your audience of, of running, you know, Polygon and, 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 you know, being part of the besties and all of that and being able to, I guess, work with and see that larger community makes me just wonder how much you spend a lot of time in, I mean, it's your professional life. This is what you do. And I sort of get curious, this feels maybe like a little bit of a tangent, but I get curious about how much time you can actually continue to spend games versus engage with it on your 
on a professional level constantly. Like, do you, is that a point of tension for you at all? You, you mentioned you're playing like a dragon right now, but like yeah. how much of that is this push and pull of like, I really want to go play. I have to play. I can't play. I need other people to play. Like, where are you in your current relationship with video games? I've always enjoyed knowing about games and reading about games as much, if not more than playing them. That's interesting. Cause that's how I am. I want to know why. Yes. I, I, as a kid, I like loved, loved video game magazines and I, the games could never live up to what I saw in the magazine. Mm. It was, it was honestly quite a bummer um, because I would like read about these things. And, and this is the peak era of overpromising, under delivering too. So no wonder, but you, you would read about these games for months and you would see these things that, you know, it's like three screenshots and then your mind would fill in the blanks of what that game could be. And obviously it could never live up to whatever your your brain created. You didn't have video of it. You barely had, you know, a screen of it. It was a photo taken, you know, off of a TV at a trade show. And yeah, just knowing about all of it and, and knowing the places that it, these things came from, that they were coming from, you know, Paris, they're coming from Canada, or they're coming from LA, or they're coming from Tokyo or Kyoto. It just felt like these like kind of like messages from other, uh, other worlds. And, um, and then you, you would play them and it'd be like, oh, okay, get all five bananas and get to the end of the level. And it's like, oh, wow, I, 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 I don't know what I was expecting, but I, it was more. And I also, we didn't have, again, a ton of money, so we had to rent a lot of games. So the games that now everybody's like, you didn't play Final Fantasy, you know, three or four or five or six or whatever. It was like, of course not. Like, how, how many times could I rent it? Like, you know, every time I was renting, that was a time I wasn't renting something else. And I, I had this like whole back catalog I wanted to get through, you know, by the time I was old enough to kind of really start renting things, most of the NES had happened. So there were so many games for me to like go back and check out. So yeah, that, that's kind of how I am now today. I don't feel a need to finish a game to like enjoy it or to talk about it, to have a rich conversation about it. I think most games are overinflated anyway. Um, you know, they're, they're filled with too much junk. And then there are types of games I just know I will never be able to speak to because they're hobbies unto themselves, like League of Legends. But no, I, I, I feel very fortunate that my job is doing the thing that I enjoy. It's learning more about games mm -hmm. and also film and TV and all sorts of other stuff. And then because of that, when I do get those hours to play games in a day, um, which, you know, maybe it's an hour a day, maybe maybe it's more. I mean, some days it's definitely more. Some days it's like, I'm, you know, just not going to sleep that night and I can play like a dragon. I'm traveling for work. But on on the average day when I have that, that, that little chunk of time, I already know exactly what I want to use it for. You know, I've already read like everything. I know I, 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 I'm so excited for it and I can dig in and I know exactly what I, I'm wanting to engage with and I'm, and I'm in it. And I think that is how I often dig into games these days. It is very rarely, oh, for three weeks, I only played this and I kind of found the fun. It, it's more often like, wow, I've read about this really weird indie thing and I've already kind of have thoughts about what it might be trying to do and its relationship with film. And then I start it and I like devour it and, and, and I kind of a sitting and then I'm, I'm done. Maybe you sort of answered it, but it gets kind of deeper into that question about like what makes it so appealing for us to 
read about and digest this. And I don't think it's like, I want to make an educated decision on what I'm about to play because I only have so much time. I think that's a very almost reductive way of looking at it and just like checking a box or, or whatever. I think there's more to the appeal of reading about these things. Actually, as you were saying that I had this like flash of, of like, why do I like the podcast into the aether so much? And I think it's because, as you were saying that, I think it's because the way Brendan and Steven describe games is very similar to that feeling that I got when I was read when I read magazines or when I was reading magazines and I'd only have a sliver or a screenshot or a paragraph or something that would describe it briefly. And my head, my my mind, my imagination would just make it more than what it is. But the way they describe the game is way more colorful, way bigger. You know, it may oh, be yes. spot on with it. It may be bigger than it, but the story they tell around the game and what's happening is so vivid that it's almost more fun to listen to that and let my imagination go wild and live in this world. It's a storytelling medium, their podcast really for me. And that's kind of what I what I get out of it and why I enjoy it so much. And and yeah, it's not that I'm playing those games. It's that I just enjoy listening to to the world that's being created and described for me. And I don't know why that feels unique to games, but it sort of does. Yeah, I, I think, well, it's certainly unique to that podcast. I love their show and I, I love both of them. I don't always love playing the games that they talk about. Right. <laughs> kind of for the reason that you're saying, because I, I think you're right that they they really bring their imagination to every gaming experience. And their gift is one, to be able to do that, to like truly role play every game that they turn on, not just role playing games, but everything that they are. They are in conversation with every game. They're in performance with it. And then to to be able to bring that back to the podcast and describe that not as a thing that they did, but just as what the game is. <laughs> I think that's like such a, a beautiful way of talking about and engaging with games. I think for me, the reason that I love reading about games and talking about games and thinking about games just as much as playing them is playing the game is a means to an end. Like I like art because it helps me think about myself in the world. And when I go to a movie, I enjoy the hour and a half to two hours of a movie. But what I enjoy the most is either that time in the movie where my mind is kind of wandering. I love slow movies for this reason, where I'm like finding my own ideas, sometimes about the movie, sometimes not about the movie. And I and I love that time afterwards where I'm, you know, with myself and I it unlocked something in me you know it helped me come to some conclusion whether that is like what we're all here to do in life or hey i should you know cook more kale i probably need greens in my life i it could, it could be anything but it, it, when something unlocks something that that feels very potent and that that's what i like about again digging into a game there are a lot of people very understandably and i i wish i was one of these people who play games because they are an escape or an a sense of accomplishment. And I, for whatever reason, I, I like really struggle to get either um, going for me. When I, when I try to do that, I feel like kind of almost a tremendous anxiety because it's like, what am I, <laughs> I, I, I just don't have the ability to turn my brain off like that. And, and uh, in a way that I think would be really helpful and healthy for me, I just struggle with. So I think that is why I also probably look for these kind of busted, broken games because they're not good enough to let me escape. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm, it's like bricked. Like I'm, I'm always aware of the artifice, um, uh, for better or worse. 
Is there on that note, is there like a particular, whether it's a seven out of 10 game, broken game or whatever, is there a genre or something that you feel like maybe you've read about it a bit, but you're naturally drawn to a particular thing like you know you're going to play? For me, I find like an example would be I find myself trying to engage with the latest, greatest popular thing, the thing that everybody's talking about. Either y'all have mentioned it on Besties or Into the Aether's been talking about it, DLCs game they're talking about this week and it's it, you know everybody's it's all over everywhere right now it'd be like prince of persia everybody's talking about the new prince of persia game and i know i'm probably gonna enjoy that because i like that like metroidvania style game but i also know that like there have been enough of these big budget big games huge things elden ring being one of them uh Baldur's gate 3 being one of them where everybody's talking about it's the best thing and i go play it and i'm like i just can't i just it doesn't yeah. click. it's not clicking for me and i'm not going to spend more time on this but i can grab a simple little puzzle game it could be loco looper on on iOS. It could be Cocoon was one that came out last year. Um, you know, I think you and I went back and forth about some of the the issues we may, might have had with that game or, or what, whatever it was. But regardless, it was that like a very satisfying puzzle. And I'm now acknowledging that like, oh, I like puzzle games. Like puzzle games yeah. are just my thing. They help me. And I've always felt that way. I'd never realized that until recently, but they get, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that out of playing something like a puzzle game. Yeah. Long, long way of long example, I guess. But is there something that you know that you found in yourself that you're just going to be drawn to? This is your shit. This is your jam. Yeah. I, I, I know exactly what it is. Um, I love games that emphasize exploration in an open space and have a, a like surprising or very sensual and I mean sensual in like the true sense, not like romantic, but like sense of the senses way of um, moving. So it, one of the earliest memories that I have as a kid is there was a like, to call it a, a toy store would be a tremendous compliment. It was like a like barn that had like school supplies in it and like some other stuff. And there was like a toy there where there it was like a little model of a city in a plastic case and it had like uh, some buildings and it had a bridge and it had a road and there was a car in it and there was a magnet on the bottom of that car. So then underneath the toy, there was a little magnet that you could run alongside the bottom of the city and that would allow you to move the car around the little plastic city, right? You're blowing my mind right now because I think I know exactly what you're talking about and I haven't had, I haven't thought of that in decades. I loved it. And I'm sure it costs like 10 or 15 bucks. It was way too expensive. Yeah. I couldn't, I could never get it. But every time we went to the store as a kid, I like sought it out. It was my favorite thing in the world. And once we got into video games and there were things like Blaster Master, where you could be like inside the machine and outside the machine or uh, River City Rampage, which was one of the first kind of open world RPGs. I mean, very, again, amoebic. Um, and I didn't have a PC, so I can't speak to like any of these. I'm sure people are like, Mule! And I'm like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about uh i was a child sir um but that that just felt so good to me it felt like again it was like the sense of freedom of being like out in a space mm-hmm. and then over time i realized that i also just really loved a sense of momentum in video games so the stuff that i still go back and like play all the time is something like gravity rush where it's about getting around this world discovering this beautiful unusual world and moving around it in a way that is just the satisfaction comes from the movement everything else is is you know secondary um gravity rush for people who haven't played it is a game where you can control the direction of gravity so you can fall quote fall really fly in any direction steep which was a ubisoft uh, snowboarding game 
that was just about going down a like actual two scale mountain on a snowboard. Yeah, it just felt great. And it felt like, wow, you have a mountain. Most of it is boring. <laughs> you can go around it. That that felt great. The original Grand Theft Auto games. Um, the ori- Grand Theft Auto 1, I was obsessed with for all of I mean, talk about a game that was that toy that I described, right? Like right. you are literally top down looking at a car moving around a city and you can take any cars you want. And you have total freedom. Um, I, I didn't like, again, I didn't like the mask. I, I didn't like the violence of it, mm-hmm. but like I liked just, Getting around a city that that felt pretty incredible. Body Harvest on the Nintendo sixty four. I could go on and on. There there is a great history of these types of games, and it's funny because some of them go on to be the biggest games in the world. Uh, but most of them, uh, Operation Silicon Valley, I think that's what it's called, something like that. It was a Nintendo sixty four game. Most of these games are lost to time um, because it took them forever to figure out how to make it anything fun for any typical person. Yeah. Do you know why you you gravitate? to those games and to that toy. This is me. I'm going, we're going back into to yeah. therapist yeah. land. Let me lie down on this. I, I, do you I feel trapped? Was... Do you, do you yeah, feel trapped? Have you felt trapped in, in the Midwest, in New York? That's a good question. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's that I, um, I think it's, it, I think it actually probably has more to do with like fear and anxiety. Like huh. I, I like the idea of doing something that's like really dangerous. Like, yeah, you love Just Cause 2, a game where you can, you know, fly and go anywhere you want and you have a parachute and a, a bungee, or not a bungee cord, a, a grappling hook. And you can, you know, pilot a Boeing and then hop and ride on the wing of it, right? And it just feels like, it feels very... I don't know, like, uh, not dangerous. I don't know. It just feels like very like living, <laughs> but it's right. funny because I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Uh, but I also know that I am the type of person that would never, ever go like skydiving. That does not appeal to me in the real world. I'm perfectly happy to like continue to be alive, um, and get my like yucks from uh, a video game. So I, I think it is, it is my way of living a type of life that maybe I would have craved had I not been raised to become the most anxious person on the planet. And it it is like feeding that, you know, caveman part of my brain that maybe shooters are feeding for a lot of other people who are like, I wish I was out doing the hunt, but uh, I'm in society and I can't go out and slaughter a boar. So uh, there's something, you know, on a very deep level that is appealing about just shooting people in Call of Duty instead. Oh man, we'll figure it out one day. You need a new vertical on on Polygon. Yeah. That's all about the you know <laughs> hire a therapist, bring in a, a therapist. To, what the to fuck is wrong with me? Sit down with your staff. Health. Yeah, you and your staff take it one at a time and say this is why Polygon plays video games. Yeah, um, as somebody who runs a video game website, something that's complete. You are you're not entirely Polygon is not entirely focused on video games these days. You are right. You fanned out into, you know, loads of entertainment. I find myself sending art, Polygon articles to my wife all the time. She she is more immersed in the TV and film world and, you know, couldn't care less about video games. Um, but I find myself sending her Polygon links, which I never thought I would do 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, which is really, really cool. But all that said, you still have you still follow the medium quite a bit. And with that purview and, and and the reporting you all and your team is doing, do you have a sense of, uh, or is there anything that you're looking forward to uh, as in terms of the future of video games, that the future of the medium? Do you see any trends that are happening that you're very, very hopeful for? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, there's a few different things that I guess that I'm interested in. 
I'm interested in, I'm trying not to give like the usual ones. There is a time where I feel like obviously uh, more stability in the workforce would be like a big one. Yeah. Um, but but uh, we've been talking about that for years. Like I, 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 I want to say something that I, I think is more interesting probably about the games. Something that I... I like is this changing of the guard of who the kind of like mm. powerful game creators are. When I got into this, it, re- it really was Activision, EA, Ubisoft, and then, you know, Sony, Nintendo, and Xbox produced the hardware. And now it's like, I, I mentioned all, all the talented Japanese studios that are, are involved. You know, we have Dragon's Dogma. C- Capcom is in just such a better place than it's been. Konami is not really Konami as much anymore. But now Kojima is doing things with a different studio. There is a, a increasingly large pool of indie developers who have become basically indie publishers uh, because they make so much money. <laughs> and um, we have things like No Man's Sky, but then Hello Games producing its own next big game, right? So it just feels like there are increasingly competitive, what is kind of like mid-budget, which is still millions of dollars games. And there are any number of reasons why that came to be, but I find all of it quite exciting. So that that part is good and i i'm glad to see i'm glad to see more companies involved because i think that allows for more creativity it encourages more creativity and risk right like if you if you want to stay relevant you actually have to start taking risks otherwise there there are other people waiting to do it uh if you aren't um and i think uh, yeah ea and activision ubisoft had maybe gotten a little complacent at, at a certain point i think that i think this kind of shift towards mobile and i don't mean that just like with like iPhone or Android, but portable gaming PCs like the Steam Deck Mm -hmm. um, becoming increasingly normal, the Switch 2, whatever that's going to be. I think that getting video games out of a gaming room will be as revolutionary for them as uh, the laptop was for computer culture. I think it's like hard for maybe younger people to remember, but or even understand there was an era of the computer room at your house that like you had the computer room and that's where mom and dad kept the computer and you had hour or two maybe where you used the computer um, and you signed online. Nobody used a phone. But and then as Wi-Fi and the laptop became just the norm, uh, suddenly everybody used a computer and the stigmatization of the computer kind of like faded. And I think that happens in part with the iPhone, but I think it's happening even more now as you can play something like Baldur's Gate 3 on the subway. You know, like yeah. there's there's a, a cultural shift that is happening with that. So I, I think that is good and kind of marks this kind of the culmination of something that has been happening, I think, since really the iPhone launched. I, I agree with that. I just was just talking to one of my old bosses today and he just was like, hey, you'd be proud of me. I bought a Switch. I'm like, that's awesome. Just when they're about to release, probably release a new one or talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. That's great. Um, but I just said, you know, it's, it's amazing how revolutionary that device has been to this movement in games, right? It was inevitable. And I think Nintendo got to it first. And I think naturally they are the ones to get to things first because they're willing to take that risk as the crazy toy maker. And now everybody's following suit, right? Like, yeah, there will continue to be, I think, consoles or some type of power, powerful, you know, big screen yeah. type of, uh, you know, type of setup or uh, just for that immersion, right? I think yeah. that that's something to be said. I play all my games handheld now, but when I do get the the opportunity to play in front of a TV, I always kind of remember, oh, it's kind of nice. It's 
it's the difference of watching movies in your house. And then again, we don't go to the theater that often, but when we do, and I sit in front of a big screen, I go, Oh, this is, there is something different about this experience, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm totally wrapped up in it. Um, I don't think that will go away, but it will, it'll become maybe less of the norm. I, I agree with that. And, but yeah, so it's, it, people are still, still buying switches, which is wild. And to your point, like that, that's becoming more, yeah. becoming more part of the norm, more pervasive. It's, it's not as for people who are obsessed with video games or play a lot of video games, it's not as common as, as you may think to playing on this on the subway or whatever is not as common as you may think. Um, there's still a lot of people who don't quite get it and are beginning to get it now. It's wild how competition forces change at an exponential rate because yes, like we have the smartphone and there, it, it, it you know, it's producing a certain type of game, largely, with some exceptions here and there. And then after years, years later, we get the Switch. And people are like, oh, I, I kind of see. And then suddenly some developers are like, yeah, we maybe we move some kind of more traditional console games to the smartphone. And then, um, you know, it's been, what, two years since we get the Switch? And suddenly it's like, uh, yeah, you can play Death Stranding on your iPhone now. <laughs> it's like, wait, right. what? Like, how did we how did we get here? You know, you just moved so fast. Um, and, and you know, here we're going to show Resident Evil at our, our, our smartphone event. And, and both... You know, Google is also competing and uh, Nintendo suddenly is like, yeah, we got to get that switch Two out um, because we have competition and Steam has uh, Steam OS and then all the Windows companies are like, we got to get that out. And suddenly everything's happening all at once. And it's not that long ago, <laughs> you know, it's like eight years ago that y- you put um, Zelda in, in someone's hand and it was like, oh, well, I didn't even know he could do this. Do you think do you think we could put maybe something else on this? Like do you, it, it still felt like like it might not last. And and now it's hard to imagine a world of video game culture that is not fundamentally built around portability in some way. Yeah. And you saying that I, I don't want to belabor the and get into maybe too deep to the conversation, you know, of layoffs and what's going on in the industry. As we talk this week on this show, this is the week that we heard of uh, the layoffs at Riot, 530 odd folks. And then yesterday, I believe it was, we heard about Microsoft and 1900 folks there along with any anybody else, all the other layoffs that have been happening, you know, towards the end of 2023. I struggle with, with squaring the circle and I don't want to talk too much about it because I'm not as educated in the space as I ought to be and, and really should, you know, digest it. I yeah. feel for everybody who's impacted by that. I've reached out to some friends who are either directly directly impacted or they have relation to people who are and it's terribly sad and and heartbreaking and the, the the square i have trouble circling is that games are more pervasive than ever there's seemingly more and more people are playing games and that's going to continue to grow and we can play in more places all you know at all times it's like how do and i don't expect you to have an answer i don't have an answer but yeah. you obviously have to have people making these games that everybody's playing all the time all over the world and again the audience and the ability that the places you can play is only growing like how how is it that we we struggle with uh the, the labor i think that the labor question or the labor problems yeah when we need all those people to to be building these things and i know there's it's more complicated than that it's a there's a whole the business layer the financial layer all that sort of uh stuff it, it's it's you know not an easy problem to solve especially when you're trying to cater to uh, a bigger 
conglomeration or shareholders or whatever it is. But, and that's why I don't think we need to get too deep into it, but it's, it's just something that I'm challenged by. There are so many games, but there's so many vehicles and places you can play these games and enjoy these games. And that's only growing. Games are not stopping or going away anywhere. They're only that the medium is only going to keep growing. Yeah. The appetite's only going to grow and the the places you can play and the people who are playing are, are growing as well. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think it comes down to just games are, still such huge financial gambles, especially the larger ones. We have to remember that Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League is competing against Pal World. They're they're competing against the same, you know, interest. There are a finite number of people. And right now two million concurrent people on PC are playing Pal World, right? Doesn't mean there's not millions of other people who could be playing Suicide Squad, but but those millions of other people are also playing Enshrouded which also just came out this week and has, I think, like they're expected, what, a million sales in the first couple of days. There's a lot out there. And some of these games are made over the course of a few years with relatively small to medium-sized teams and expectations that are getting far surpassed. And then you have something like Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League from Rocksteady Games, which I don't know how it's going to do, but I, I'm, I would be concerned. Um, if, I, if I were um, there, it's a game that has taken seven or eight years to develop, um, leadership changes. Uh, it is a IP game tied to superheroes that have gone through, I mean, where superhero culture was when this game began development and where it is now is a totally different place, right? And all of those decisions, some within the control of very powerful people, like the decision to make it a kind of like a living game or at least present like one. That was a decision that I, I think, in hindsight, probably a lot of people wish they could take back. But some decisions that were not really in their control, like it probably seemed like a really good idea to make a superhero game eight years ago. There, if you went back and, and gave everybody that choice, I think most people would be like, eight years ago, yeah, that seems pretty good. We'll probably ship this game in two or three years. It's going to be great. Um, But then things go poorly. And I think that is what is so hard. And I just have just endless sympathy, anxiety. I, I don't know what to describe for people who are making these things because you are not just dealing with, in some cases, incompetency of executives because I don't think it's that every time. It's, it's just not how business works. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You are also dealing with so many third-party stakeholders in these, in these larger projects. You are dealing with the luck of the draw with your release date when you are competing against you know, dozens of games. Who knows if you, you thought you had a clear window releasing a game in January. Surprise, Power World and Shrouded are coming out. Good luck having your game seen by anyone. There are just so many things that can go wrong with how games are available right now and how games are made that it's just, it, 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 it's terrifying. And I think that is what's hard. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of people fighting for unionization because they are fighting for a sense of at least some control within this world where so much is completely out of their control and even their boss's control. But to at least have some of it is, I think, um, understandably quite desirable. Yeah, when, 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 when so much has been taken away from you. 
Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I don't have the words for it. I think that that was very helpful. Um, I'm processing a lot of it and just feeling a lot of it through social media. And, and again, like, like I said, friends. So I appreciate your perspective on it. I don't want to, it's sort of not, it's not really the point of this podcast, but it, it made, you know, Oh yeah. No, the, I mean, the pervasiveness I, 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 of consoles made me think of it and just how much volume there is out there. Right. So. It's impossible for me not to think about it. And it's impossible for me not to think about it also because what is happening in the media world right. is not so different. <laughs> I mean, the reasons are different, but again, the um, we live in an age of abundance, uh, which I imagine is quite great for consumers, maybe. I don't know. But on the media side, you know, when you have endless content that is free, fighting for that attention, making those decisions and accounting for what is accountable for and what is not is is terrifying. So I, a very different experience, but I, I think it's just a hard time to be creating things right now uh, if you want to make a living off of it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a way to, to kind of steer this in a better direction and wrap the show a bit. And perhaps we've already answered this, uh, but I'll give you one more shot at it too. <laughs> Thinking about Polygon and all that you cover in this media landscape, trying to yeah. get all these eyeballs on all this stuff. You guys are covering a large swath of things from video games, obviously, to movies and TV and books and comics and you name it. Why or what makes video games so unique amongst all those mediums? I imagine that video games is, it, you know, it's obviously near and dear to your heart. I know you have a soft yeah. spot for, for TV or movies, whatever that thing's called. I'm not quite sure what it is. But, <laughs> yeah, um, the moving picture. What about video games maybe sets it apart or makes it different than the other mediums in, in through your eyes? It's very obvious. One is, you yeah. know, they do have text, I guess, so they can be read like books. They can be experienced like movies. I mean, I, I think that that's it, is that they <laughs> aren't different. Is What I like about them is that they are all of the things, right? That they are music and they are art and they are um, play like sport that they are interactive sometimes and other times they're they're not interactive whatsoever. I we started this talking about like a dragon the yakuza games and here is a game that for 40 minutes you could barely touch the controller at all and then you could be deep in a whole bunch of dumb pointless grinding mini games that aren't even that good but are kind of conveying silly stories and then you can be in a exceptionally well put together clone of animal crossing for days of just playing that right that as I think I love these games because they are games, right? They are, they're using all of the tools in the toolbox because that's what a game gets to do. A game doesn't give a shit what, what you want, you know, and well, I, let me be clear, the game developer, I'm not talking about the game developer. I'm saying if you are making a game and you say, okay, for the next hour, it's a movie. Cool. And if you after that say there's going to be no no visuals, it's just going to be sound, but you have to navigate a world using just sound, the game will say, that sounds great. You can do that. And then you can say, you know what? 10 minute music break, no playing again. The game will say, sure, there is nothing stopping you from doing that. You can do all of that and it will still be the game. It will still be consistent. And that is a thing that truly nothing else can offer because that's just not how the other things work. It is the definition of a, a remix, I guess, uh, of a sludge, of a smoothie, of a chopped salad, of whatever you want to call it. But it gets to be everything. And it gets to choose the medium that is the best for the moment at any time. And that, I think, is a gift. And I think that's something film has 
approached. You know, film, you can have a really long lingering shot. But at the end of the day, the film has to still decide when to cut. And a film cannot give you agency. And a film cannot let you take your time scanning, reading text. A game can. It, it, it puts the cut into, you know, into your hand. Unless it doesn't. And it, it makes the cuts for you. It can do that too. That I think is what is so special about them and why they are the medium of our time. That's who we are as people, right? You know, it's funny that games happen before the internet because games feel to me like the art form of the internet in this age where we can get anything. We can pull up a song. We can pull up a movie. We can read a book. We can do anything we want uh, with the little slab of metal in our hands. That to me just feels like what game culture is. And they feel like kind of natural companions in history. I don't want to add any more to that. I could say a bunch. I'm not going to. I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> that was great. We're going to put a bow on it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here. I still, that whole time I was trying to think of a cute plant name for you and I couldn't do it. Star plant it is. Power plant. Uh, power plant. I really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I've wanted to have this conversation for a while. If it felt a little disjointed or I sound weird and fuzzy and can't quite get my questions out, it's, it's my daughter's fault. I love her to death, but she did this to me. She's so cool and yet fully to blame. Such a thrill to have Chris Plant on the show. It's always a treat for me when I have somebody who I'm a big fan of uh, agree to come on Y Button and talk about video games. It's just, there's, there's nothing cooler than that. And also really, really neat that he kind of came at this with a really objective opinion, not just like his personal take and his history with games, but really how he thinks about the industry and culture at large, which I felt was really, really refreshing. And then man, just stuck the landing at the end. If you want to hear more from Chris, I would recommend going to Polygon.com where you can read his work alongside the rest of the Polygon team. I would also recommend his excellent video game podcast, The Besties. And uh, while you're checking that out, why not just sign up for their newsletter at besties.fan. You'll get a sneak peek of the upcoming episode. Sometimes there's even review code in there for games and uh, surveys about earwax. Lucky you. I mentioned at the end of the episode with Stephen Hilger that I'll be releasing episodes as they come out for the foreseeable future. That is still true. I'd love to be in a position to put Y button on a consistent release schedule, but it's just not in the cards between my professional and personal lives. So if you are a huge fan of this show, I really appreciate that. That's wonderful. Uh, continue to, to be that, please. But also just please be patient. Um, I'll, I'll work on episodes as they pop up, as I have time and as I book guests. So thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, please share it with a friend. The easiest thing to do might be to share the website whybutton.online. Uh, it includes links to the most popular podcast platforms. I'd also appreciate a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever supports ratings and reviews. Uh, that would be great. If you want to get in touch, ask questions, uh, or recommend guests, feel free to reach out to whybuttonpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have whybutton on Mastodon at whybutton at mastodon.social if you're still using Mastodon. I also just set up a threads and an Instagram account at Y button podcast. So you can find us there too. Uh, you can find me on threads underscore Kyle star, uh, as well as Instagram. I also am on Mastodon from time to time at Kyle star at mastodon.social. This episode was produced and edited by AJ Filari. Thank you, AJ, for continuing to do this with me. It means the world artwork for the show was made by me. Thank you, me. Our theme song was written by Childstar, who's me featuring my friend Scott Wilkie. It's called On the Same Page. You can find it on all streaming platforms. Thanks again for listening to Y Button. And remember, when you press Y, ask why. Why?